Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from the Herald Times, featuring coverage of local news, entertainment, and sports. In print at heraldtimesonline.com and on your mobile device. From the Milton Metz studio in the radio TV building at Indiana University, welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, along with co-host WFIU and WTIU News Bureau Chief Sarah Whitmire. And today we're going to talk about the growing problem of illnesses that are resistant to antibiotics. Antibiotics and antimicrobials uh, are expected to worsen. The resistance to them are expected to worsen by the middle of this century, with at least one estimate projecting drug-resistant diseases could kill up to 10 million people a year by 2050. We have three guests with us in the studio to talk about this issue. Two are actually here in the studio. Karen Bush, professor of practice in biotechnology at Indiana University, and Dr. Richard Feldman, a family physician with Franciscan Health and the former commissioner of the Indiana State Department of Health are both here in Bloomington in the studio. Joining us by phone is John Hiles, an infectious diseases clinical pharmacist at Indiana University Health. If you have questions or comments for us today, give us a call at 812-855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348. You can follow us at news at indianapublicmedia.org, or you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So welcome to our guests today. Thanks for being here. You're welcome. And thanks for being on the phone, John. We're happy to have all three of you with us today. So I just want to start with a very general overview of this issue. So um, we were talking with, with Karen Bush earlier about how long this has been a problem or an issue. How long have you been working on, on this? Well, I started looking for new drugs to treat resistant infections in 1977. That was about the third wave of antimicrobial resistance that triggered new drug uh, efforts in the pharmaceutical industry. Mm-hmm. And I spent 35 years trying to develop drugs mm-hmm. to treat uh, increasing resistance. As we introduced new drugs, we got new resistances. And you're still at it. We're still at it. Still at it. Well, Dr. Feldman, you know, in both your family practice and as the commissioner of the Indiana State Department of Health, I mean, this is been an issue you've been keeping an eye on as well. Indeed. Uh, I I went into practice, uh, private practice in 1980, and uh, that was a a growing issue at that time. And it seemed, Karen, it seemed that back then in the 80s, the 90s, there was a plethora of new antibiotics, oral antibiotics, that we could use in the office to, uh, to treat infections. And now, in the 21st century, it just seems like uh, there's hardly ever a new oral antibiotic uh, coming out. Um, And the newer ones that do come out are for hospital use and IV. From a public health standpoint, you know, I did deal with this uh, as state health commissioner. Uh, and I remember giving a speech. I can't remember exactly what the what the group was, but I was congratulating them on their uh, efforts to to work together. And, you know, that's obviously a basic public health principle for everybody to work together. You know, healthcare, insurance, business, uh, public health, uh, industry, uh, educators to really try to pull everything together from a population based standpoint to work in, in, in tandem with the individual practitioner in their office because this is not a problem that's going to be solved just by the CDC and the FDA or in the doctor's office. It's going to have to be a combined effort, just like probably a poor analogy, but uh, tobacco. Mm-hmm. And smoking. It was a combined effort, and this is a growing issue that really is not in the forefront of anybody's mind. Mm-hmm. But I was scared um, uh, as state health commissioner, and sometimes uh, we were talking before the show started about some of my anxiety about treating uh, 
MRSA, that's uh, resistant staph aureus. I mean, it's scary when I th- we start thinking about it and those limited antibiotics we have. A couple more uh, resistance to antibiotics, and we're really going to be up the creek. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's my perspective. That's the big picture, it. yeah. yeah. Well, I want to ask John Hiles in, uh, as well into our conversation. So, so what's your view, your, your big 60,000-foot 60, view of this issue, John? Um, thanks for having me. So as Dr. Feldman said, I mean, we stopped having many new antibiotics um, quite a while ago, and I got involved back in um, 2007 uh, with what we call antimicrobial stewardship, which is when we finally realized we weren't really getting new antibiotics. We had to figure out better ways to use the ones we have. So I've been involved in programs at a few different hospitals that really focus on, you know, correct selection, correct dosing, um, correct um, durations for all these antibiotics. And I guess the larger view here is there's a lot of things that can be done as far as what we do have um, that can help improve um, resistance, but um, it's only going to get worse. And luckily, we do have some things coming around the corner. We've started to get some new drugs recently, um, which is a good um, good sign, but um, still, we we're in a little bit of a problem here with the drug companies in that, you know, whenever they spend the millions of dollars making new antibiotics, we want to use them in as few patients as possible because as soon as you start using an antimicrobial, uh, the sooner you'll lose it. Why is that? I'd like to address that because I was in the industry when we were uh, getting 10 or 15 new drugs approved every year, new antibiotics. And then we got to a point where the FDA became very cautious. They stopped approving drugs that were probably decent drugs, but they said that there might be safety issues and they wanted larger studies. Companies started getting out of the business. Uh, We ended up with a lot of small companies that jumped in in the time period of 2000-2010. Since 2014, we've had 10 new antibiotics approved by the FDA. Uh, Most of these are for hospital infections. I think only two of them can be taken orally, but they're expensive. And that's the biggest problem, is that people are used to going to get amoxicillin with a copay of $5. Uh, Some of these new drugs are $1,000 a day, but they treat the resistant infections. We do have some drugs now that are treating some of our, our most worrisome infections, but people can't afford them. And this is a real issue. And and the large pharmaceutical companies now have gotten out because they can't make money in anti-infectives. So there are only three large companies left. We're depending on small biotechs. Mm -hmm. Is it normal that these drugs stop being effective? Well, let me me try to address that from a very general viewpoint, Uh, I think understandable viewpoint for the the audience. there, there wouldn't be an, there wouldn't be antibiotic resistance if we didn't use them. So bacteria are not stupid, you know. They will adapt to threats against their existence, just like all living organisms and animals do. And so they're exposed to an antibiotic, and they self-select genetically. So you use an antibiotic and there's a certain subset of bacteria that are have a natural a little resistance and then you start selecting those bacteria to, to proliferate because they're more resistant. So the resistance grows so and then you get into a problem. So antibiotic resistance is a natural process. So you can't get around it. There's going to be a certain amount of antibiotic resistance just by the fact that you use the antibiotic. Um, And it's our job then to try to limit uh, that resistance growing by judicious use of our antibiotics. So is it... I'm probably completely oversimplifying it, but there are other other causes than just overprescribing it or taking it too frequently. Sure. Uh, uh, so, some of the uh, 
real sources of antibiotic resistance are coming from non-human use of antibiotics. We have about 80% of the antibiotics uh, used in veterinary or agricultural purposes. Yesterday, there was a, a, an article talking about spraying orange trees, citrus trees in Florida, with 440,000 kilograms of antibiotics to try to uh, kill an invasive insect that may or may not, this may or may not be effective. But we're dumping useful antibiotics into the environment, mm. and that's yeah. certainly not helping. And the majority of antibiotics are being used in agriculture um, and in veterinary medicine. Mm -hmm. And you have these large animal farms, sometimes with not very sanitary uh, conditions, crowded conditions, um, and uh, these uh, farmers are inappropriately too often using antibiotics to promote growth of their animals. They get bigger animals. They, pr they use it prophylactically to prevent disease that are better prevented by more uh, mainstream public health means rather than just giving antibiotics. Uh, and um, then we 50% of our meat supply is supposedly infected by resistant bacteria. The cattle and other animals um, defecate on the land. Uh, that can get into the soil, streams, it blows in the air, um, and then you get contamination of crops, and, that, and you hear about the E. coli and salmonella and, and, and infected uh, lettuce and romaine and all kinds of products. So it diffuses into our, our uh, environment in our communities. John, let's, let's bring you in. Yeah, so, and kind of expanding on that, um, we've had 10 new antibiotics since 2014, but most of them are very similar to antibiotics we've had in the past. They're, you know, beta-lactams, which are similar to penicillins. So even the new ones we have are very similar to things these organisms have seen in the past. Like, for example, when we first got penicillin um, and first treated a patient successfully in 1942, the first resistant um, staph infection was identified to penicillin that same year, which probably means it was already in the population. And a lot of our antibiotics are things that we got from bacteria in the first place that they've used against each other. So they usually have some type of inherent um, ability to become resistant to these things. So, so why is it that it keeps getting worse and worse and if, if we're more aware of it now? There, there is inappropriate antibiotic use. That's part of it. Uh, someone who has a sore throat will go in to a, to a family doctor and say, I want an antibiotic, even though it may be a viral infection. They uh, use antibiotics too long, or there are, again, there are uh, inappropriate uses where the antibiotics get into the wastewater. Uh, if you look at at rivers that have been sampled that are close to hospitals. They find that a lot of antibiotics are being put into the water systems and pumped out into rivers that then be become antibiotic-laden. Uh, so that in France, for example, there was one study showing that the level of antibiotic, the level of a quinolone, something like Cipro or Levaquin, was high enough to start killing the the normal bacteria that people have in their in their guts, and so it was something that was certainly going to promote antibiotic resistance. I'm not, sir. I'm not sure it's getting worse, but it's a compounding. It's a compounding of, of resistance. You have resistance, and then the baseline increases. You get new antibiotics. They become resistant to the new antibiotics. So it's just a cumulative process, but. Karen's right. One of the major issues is the overprescription of antibiotics, and we just talked about the overuse in agriculture uh, as well. And those are probably the two main reasons. There is some compliance issues. One, using uh, not finishing your antibiotic, 
which would promote the resistant bacteria that were going to possibly survive the treatment to grow and proliferate, mm. or for physicians to use antibiotics too long inappropriately. Now, sometimes you, we get forced into doing that. Like a good example is recurrent urinary infections. Especially women, they'll come in all the time, they get reinfected, reinfected, and then we start using suppression, and then we see, and I've seen this, supp the suppressive drug, they become resistant to it. So it's the, the price we pay. Uh, for using yep. antibiotics. Let me give our phone numbers again really quickly, and then I'll, I'll bring John back in. 812-855-0811 uh, in Bloomington. 1-877-285-9348. If you're outside of the Bloomington area, you can also go to find us online, news at indianapublicmedia.org, or at Noon Edition. You can find us on <clears throat> Twitter. John? Yeah, Dr. Feldman, I think that's a great point. And kind of going back to Sarah's question about... Um, we know so much about this. I don't know if that's necessarily true. There's still a lot of things that we don't know. So, like, duration is one of those things. We don't really know how long we need to treat a lot of different infections. Um, it all seems to be based on, you know, the Julian calendar that was made 2,000 years ago or some kind of combination of a football score. It should either be 7, 10, or 14 days. Um, we're starting to get more evidence that maybe those longer durations aren't necessary and they're really just... Um, exposing, you know, people that might actually need antibiotics to longer than necessary duration. So we're, you know, we're exploring um, tests like um, there's a blood test that you can use to try to see if someone's improved enough on an uh, antimicrobial to stop it. Um, our goal with an antimicrobial isn't to completely destroy every one of those bacteria on your body. It's simply to kind of right the ship to help your body's own immune system get the upper hand and then take it from there. I want to ask you a very simple question just to make sure we get our definitions right. Uh, you know, we've been, Sarah and I have been having trouble saying antimicrobial, um, but there's antimicrobial and antibiotics. What's, what's the difference? Is there a difference? Yes. Karen? An antibiotic was defined by Selman Waxman in the 1940s as a material that will kill bacteria. Antimicrobial agents are drugs that will kill not only bacteria, but viruses and fungi. Okay. So not all antibiotics are antimicrobials. No, not all antimicrobials are, are antibiotics. Anti okay, gotcha. <laughs> so a, a good example would that be would be Tamiflu for the flu. It's very specific for the flu. It's, a, if you will, an antiviral, just like the antiviral drugs for HIV. So it's a it's a broader category, an antimicrobial. Yes, mm -hmm. it's a right, right. yeah, it's a broader than antibiotic. Okay, we have a phone call. Let's go to Sarah on the phone. Sarah, hi, this is Sarah Collin, and I had two questions. One is, uh, uh, if you discuss phage therapy, I know it's been used in Eastern Europe. Prevention magazine uh, profiled a lady who had resistant MRSA, and the Mayo Clinic gave her so many months to get her affairs in order because she would get pneumonia that they couldn't treat, and she went over to Zealy, Georgia, to a phage clinic and was treated successfully. And uh, Newsweek magazine also profiled the use of phage therapy. So that was number one. And number two, uh, I kind of wonder if we're not... You have a lot of people living longer, but they're living in immune-compromised positions, elderly people, uh, HIV patients, and um, inadvertently, we're also breeding antibiotic resistance through treating those people, but then humanely, you can't refuse them treatment. So anyway, those are my questions. You take one. Oh, All right. Oh, yeah, oh. Karen, I'll take one. I'll take phage. One. You can take immunocompromised. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, phage therapy is something people have been looking at for decades. Uh, many, probably scores of decades, because it's been around for a long time, in, since the early 1900s. There are a lot of people who think that this is one way to avoid antibiotic resistance, but in reality, you're going to get resistance to the phage. And so you can use a phage only for so long against one particular organism. Bacteria mutate very readily, very easily, they will mutate so that the phage will not be able to be effective after a short period of time. And so people think phage therapy may work, but you may have to use what we call a cocktail of phages, where you have a variety of phages that will attack 
more than one strain of a bacteria. What so this is a, yeah, this is a new word on yeah. me. So our uh, producer, Patrick, spelled it P-H-A-G-E-S. Is that correct? P-H-A-G-E. P-G-E. And multiple, yeah, <laughs> right. Okay. What, it, what is that? But you're exactly. talking about uh, bac- bacteriophages. Right. And bacteriophages, on the other side of the coin, can promote resistance because the phage, which is a, a virus, if I'm mm-hmm. correct, um, can actually pass on genes from resistance genes from one bacteria to another. Oh. So I think there's two sides of that coin, and I, I can't tell you that I really understand that very much. But you know. uh, from a, it's, a, it's it's controversial. Okay, and then she mentioned people living longer. Is that a <coughs> John? You want? Do you have anything you want to add about that? Well, I mean a lot of. Some of the most resistant organisms that we see um, do end up developing in those patients that have had um, chronic diseases for a long time. Um, I mean, the the patients I usually think of are those that you know have um, you know limbs that have become infected um, because they have very poor blood supply to those limbs. So diabetes is one cause. Smoking um, is another. Um, and we think of that as like a source control problem where um, if you can basically cut off the infection, um, you'll do a lot better. But, you know, sometimes there are places that you can't cut off. Um, so patients that are chronically requiring a ventilator, um, those infections are very hard to treat. Um, so we do see some resistance develop there. Um, and those are extremely tough. Um, I will say that, I think this was mentioned earlier, but bacteria don't want to become resistant. It takes them energy to do that. So a lot of times, if you remove the antibiotics for a long enough period of time um, from a population, you might get better, but it's hard to clear it once it's gotten, you know, stuck someplace you can't remove. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, In medicine, what we try to do is rotate antibiotics, too. If somebody has a recurrent problem, let's say it's a... uh, patient with uh, sinusitis or a a chronic obstructive lung disease patient who gets recurrent infections, um, someone with that recurrent urinary tract infection, what we try to do is rotate. Um, So the the, uh, bacteria get used to one antibiotic, well, let it rest and then use another one. So it doesn't get used to one antibiotic. You You let the you let the antibiotic rest, and that resistance may dissipate. The, the uh, caller's question about uh, immunocompromised individuals, uh, transplants, uh, um, chronic renal failure, uh, HIV, um, older people, uh, because we have a natural uh, waning of our immune response as we get older, people with chronic diseases of all types, Uh, diabetes, for example, have blunted immune responses. Uh, The frail, especially the elderly, all those people are the very ones that are most vulnerable and are apt, most likely to die from an antibiotic-resistant infection because they have very little reserve and very little natural defenses. So those are the people, unfortunately, that are the, the... Worst recipients of this problem. All right, we're going to have to take a short break. We're talking about um, antimicrobial and antibiotics and, and resistant drugs to those. Um, we're talking with three guests today Karen Bush, a professor of practice and biotechnology at IU, Dr. Richard Feldman, a family physician with Franciscan Health and a former commissioner of the Indiana State Department of Health, and John Hiles, an infectious diseases clinical pharmacist at IU Health. We'll be right back. From the Milton Met Studio at IU's Radio TV building, this is Noon Edition on WFIU. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state throughout the day at WFIUNews.org and on Twitter at WFIUNews. 
You can watch unfiltered video of breaking stories on Facebook Live, and you can get a digest of all the day's top stories delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of the headlines, plus the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe now at WFIUnews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, along with Sarah Whitmire, the uh, co-host and the WFIU and WTIU News Bureau Chief. We're with Karen Bush, Professor of Practice in Biotechnology at IU, Dr. Richard Fellman, a family physician with Franciscan Health and the former commissioner of the Indiana State Department of Health, and John Hiles, an infectious diseases clinical pharmacist at Indiana University Health. If you want to join us on the program for the second half here, 812-855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348, news at indianapublicmedia.org if you want to reach us online and at Noon Edition if you want to reach us on the social media. I want to follow up with you, Dr. Fullman, on something you said earlier in the show, and I think John even mentioned it too, is that the antibiotics that are being developed now, a lot of those are just for use at hospitals. Why Why is that? Well, that's a good question that I can't answer. Uh, maybe Karen has a better idea, but that's that's been the trend. And as a family doctor, 90% of my work is in my office. And what the, 90% of the problems with antibiotic resistance is not in the hospital for me, but it's in the office. That's and if we don't treat it well in the office, they end up being in the hospital. So and it's just drugs they can just prescribe at a hospital. Well, no, no, because it's IV, okay. you, know, oh, okay. you see, and it's not oral, um, uh, you know, oral medication you take by, with, by pill. And uh, when I first went into practice up through the 90s, um, there were so many new antibiotics. It was exciting you know, uh, being produced. And the, I remember the fluoroquinolones, for example. Uh, that's, that's like Levaquin and Cipro, and you probably have heard of those. And when those first came out, Karen and I were talking about this before the show. When that came out, they, everybody was touting those uh, fluoroquinolones because it would take two mutations to make resistance. So it was like resistance proof. Mm-hmm. Well, pr- now we know it's not, and we're seeing large amounts of resistance to Cipro and Levaquin and some of the other fluoroquinolones. And our, our farm D at our hospital, is his, that's his pet peeve. Don't use Levaquin, because everybody wants to use Levaquin, Levofloxin, uh, floxacin, um, and say, we you leave it alone? There are other antibiotics we can use and because the resistance is growing. And it's such a, those are so valuable as antibiotics. But if we overuse them, they're going to be useless. Yes. I worked at Johnson & Johnson when levofloxacin was introduced to the market. And my laboratory worked on resistance to levofloxacin. When levofloxacin was first introduced, E. coli, which is a very common cause of urinary tract infections, was 99% susceptible. It could be treated with levofloxacin. In New Jersey emergency rooms, levofloxacin was called vitamin L because when people came to the emergency room, they would walk out with a prescription for levofloxacin. Now levofloxacin is probably uh, not useful at all against uh, E. coli in some geographical areas because there's well over 50% resistance. Mm -hmm. I want to ask John, um, just for point of clarification, you know, I get to ask all the simple questions. I hope that a lot of our readers have similar ones. But, you know, as a, as a pharmacist, are, are, you, are, are pharmacists just filling prescriptions or are they making recommendations for what kind of antibiotic might be used in a particular case? How's that, how's that work? Well, I mean, um, really depends on the, the setup. Um, unfortunately, a lot of community pharmacists aren't uh, in a great position to call back the prescriber and tell them, um, maybe this isn't the best choice. They also might not be privy to the um, information that you know practitioners like Karen Bush and other microbiologists have, where they can show 
what the organism is specifically susceptible to. So they're not in the best position to really police that. Um, the type of pharmacist that I am and uh, the pharmacist that Dr. Feldman works with at St. Francis, we um, finished pharmacy school then and then went on to do um, two years of residency um, to do this type of work. Um, the place I am now, I, I definitely you know, work with physicians, try to get the education out as far as what the selection should be. Um, we do work with our community pharmacists as much as we can, just um, trying to make the empiric selection correct, um, do some education about the differences between things like levofloxacin and other options that might treat some of the most common infections outpatients. Um, so we try as much as possible, but I can definitely see some of pharmacists that might not be very closely associated with a physician's office not really being in a position to say, hey, there might be a better option here. In, in and in a follow-up question, just thinking about um, the business of medicines and drugs, because I know whenever I go to my doctor, it seems like there is a pharmaceutical rep in the office trying to sell something new to the physicians. Um, you know, where, where does the, the economics of this situation end and the actual, you know, medical benefits begin? If it, that's not a good way to ask that question, but how do those overlap? Karen? I, I think that this is something that we're seeing in play at this point. We've got the, all these new drugs, but they aren't drugs where people are going to go to a doctor's office and say, here's, here's a sample, try it out. They're, a lot of them are the hospital drugs. They're very expensive. They are drugs that are, are extremely useful in certain resist, specific resistant bacteria. But uh, the pharmaceutical companies are having difficulties in promoting these. They've cut back on their sales forces in terms of trying to promote the new drugs. Uh, and the drug sales are very low. We've got some really powerful new drugs, but they aren't selling. They aren't selling very well because, as John said, they're put on reserve, and so this is this is a real issue. And one reason the pharmaceutical companies have dropped out of the picture. So, in terms of research, is there still a lot of research happening for new drugs, or is that not in the large companies? The large companies have pretty much cut back on anti-infective research. It's your small biotechs and academic labs that are doing research. So mm -hmm. what yep. role do governments or health agencies have in that then if this has become, you know, the World Health Organization is talking about it, and you said you've been talking about it since the 80s. I mean, at what point does it become? Well, there was something called the GAIN Act several years ago that put a lot of funding into private-public partnerships uh, there's a group called BARDA, there is NIH, NIAD that are uh, setting up funding agencies whereby small groups, small academic groups, small biotechs can get funding to do antibiotic research. And this has been very helpful. There's also an organization called CARBEX, which is combating antibiotic resistance. There is money out there, but not enough to get a lot of new drugs out in the immediate future. Mm -hmm. John? Can I have yeah. one quick thing? Sure. Um, and there's also been some work to, you know, give these companies a little bit of an incentive to put, you know, millions of dollars into research. Um, they've extended some of the patents for these if they can create a drug that's truly new um, and fills a role um, as far as treating a resistant organism. So that's one incentive, but yeah, I agree with Karen. Um, it is a huge problem. They just don't have enough of an incentive. There is still research going on, and I will say I work pretty closely with the drug companies when they come out, making sure that you know we use it on only the appropriate patients. Um, so for good or bad, um, trying to limit it to where it's really needed. I I know earlier, Karen, you said something about um, in some parts of the world. So that made me think that antibiotic resistance is different in different yes. parts of the world. It's and, very different. And is it not as bad in the U.S.? Is that why perhaps we don't hear as much about it? Or what is your take? It's not as bad as some places like in India. There have been some studies in India that have shown that uh, 
there are certain resistances to the beta-lactams, the drugs like penicillins and cephalosporins and carbapenems. A new resistance was identified in 2009. In 2010, they discovered that this new resistance that nobody had ever seen before was appearing in in drinking water, in pool puddles of water just standing in the in the street, in uh, the water supplies in India. They've got a tremendous infectious disease problem over there. So, is it a, a matter of sanitation? Some of it is sanitation, definitely. Mm-hmm. Some of it's also the fact that you don't need a prescription to get antibiotics. That's right. In certain places. Yeah. So you could just walk in off the street and say, I'm mm-hmm. a cough. Give me your most powerful stuff. All right. Our phone numbers again, if you want to call and, and ask questions or, or give us some comments, 812-855-0811, 1-877-285-9348. You can find us online, news at indianapublicmedia.org or on social media, Twitter, at Noon Edition. Sarah, who called earlier, called back. Um, she's the one who called about phages, and she called back to say, just to ask, are there things that people can do at home to sort of help with this issue? I mean, like, is there anything that an yeah. individual can do? Antibiotic resistance? Yeah, I mean, I well, guess... Well, I think it's just basic hygiene. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, uh, personal hygiene, um, your living conditions your sanitation in your house, um, cleanliness, washing your hands is a, a basic uh, way. Food preparation, food safety, food storage, making sure that you're not going to be uh, letting foods spoil. Uh, and sometimes when it spoils, it's harmless. Sometimes it's not. Uh, and depending on um, you know that chicken salad and what that chicken had uh, in terms of salmonella, you know, it could make a big difference. <laughs> Cooking your meats, you know, properly because again, it, you know, half the meat we eat is contaminated by by resistant bacteria, let alone it's probably much more just bacteria. Um, vaccination, and I know there's a lot of discussion about vaccination, but. Better to prevent than try to treat, resistant or not. You know, a lot of these are immunizations for viruses, of course, but also for bacteria. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be, our public, the younger public especially, has lo- they've lost the understanding of how important vaccination is because they've never seen those diseases. They've never seen polio. Mm-hmm. They've never seen tetanus or diphtheria. Well, so, and I was going to ask about about that. Is, is I think I've read various times that things like tuberculosis are making a bit of a comeback. Is that true? Yes, it is, and and resistant uh, yeah. tuberculosis is becoming m- more and more of a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, Karen, Karen, do you want to say something? Well, yes. Yesterday there was a, a report from the CDC that said that actually from 2017 to 2018. TB rates had gone down just a little bit. Not much, but just a little bit. And they were somewhat encouraged by that. Are kids still vaccinated for TB? I mean, I was vaccinated. No, we, don't, we don't vaccinate for TB. We test for TB. Okay. So you got the TB test. Okay. If you reacted, now we use a blood test, actually, to see if you're infected. If you're okay. infected, we want to make sure it's not active. So, uh, yeah. And then we use prophylactic antibiotics <laughs> to help you not uh, reduce your chances of not activating sometime in your life. Mm-hmm. So that's another, another use yeah. of prophylactic antibiotics, which we usually don't like to use unless mm-hmm. necessary. Well, on a global scale, one of the efforts that has been actually somewhat uh, effective has been trying to cut down on antibiotic use in the veterinarian area. And in Europe, they have now banned the use of all human antibiotics in the use of animals even for treatment of disease. Uh, In the United States in 2017, they passed uh, regulations that said that anyone who gets antibiotics to use in animals has to have a veterinarian involved. And the only time they can use uh, antibiotics is either for prevention or for treatment of a disease. 
And apparently people think that that isn't strong enough wording, that they need to be able to say it's only for treatment of a specific disease on an animal-by-animal basis. So we still have a way to go, but we're we're making some headway in terms of that particular area. We have a call from uh, a, a question from one of our callers. Amy called to ask about how a patient's relationship with their doctor could have an impact on all of this. Is there anything that people should tell their doctors? Yeah, I wanted to get to this because uh, Bob, you asked what what can we what can the, your listeners do personally to reduce the. Um, chances of having an antibiotic resistance. Let me tell you a story. I like to tell stories. When I went into practice in 1980, and I went into practice in Carmel, Indiana. Uh, I had a relatively affluent, well-educated, intelligent group of people as patients. And when I first started, I was fresh out of residency. I knew the appropriate use of antibiotics. And just like my residents today at St. Francis, they use them very, very cautiously and appropriately. So I went into practice, and a lot of these people, of course, came in with viral upper respiratory infections and bronchitis. And I would tell these individuals, you know, this is the reason we're not going to use an antibiotic because it's viral and it won't do you any good. And they would all thank me and smile and say, thank you, very nice to meet you. Several weeks later, my partners cornered me in in the office one morning, and they said, look, you've got to start using antibiotics, because all we're getting is phone calls at night talking about the stupid doctor that you brought on who doesn't know anything and didn't give me an antibiotic. So this is what physicians are faced with in their office. Residents leave residency knowing the best practices. And then you get into practice. You're busy. You're seeing 30 patients a day. Uh, You've developed relationships with these patients. And somewhere after Fleming discovered penicillin and gave it to the world, and today people decided every infection, especially respiratory infections, should be treated with an antibiotic because they want to get better. You know, they have that wedding to go to. They're going to Florida on vacation. They need to be well, and they want an antibiotic. And I think that story underscores the pressure on physicians. It's easier to get people out of the office and make people happy by giving them an antibiotic. But it's not, usually it's not the right thing to do. And your, your listeners need to understand, don't go into a doctor's office with the expectation, if you're sick, you're going to get an antibiotic. Because it's usually, you usually don't need one, and it's not the best. Because now you're creating resistance to the bacteria in your own body, and then spreading it to the community. And that's probably the, the biggest problem with antibiotic resistance is over-prescription, of an, as well as the veterinary issue. But that is, that's the one thing that your listeners should do is go to your doctor, talk to your doctor, listen to your doctor, ask your doctor, do I really need this antibiotic? Because he or she may assume you want one. And I think doctors, what they need to do is not overprescribe, and they know exactly how not to do that, but then talk to their patients, educate their patients about why this infection is not amiable to treatment with an antibiotic, and it's not in your best interests. And then talk to your patient about what's your expectations. I ask my patients all the time, what's your expectations? And it says, well, I was hoping to get an antibiotic. Then you can talk and try to educate. And I shouldn't admit this over the air, but one of the strategies I've used, and I teach this, is when you're in practice, you're going to be busy. Um, you got 10 minutes for a patient. Yes, educate, talk to your patient, but when your back is against the wall, write out that prescription and give it to them and say, I want you not to use this for 48 hours if you can. Don't use it because I think you're going to find in 24 hours you're going to start to get better. If you're starting to get better, you don't need it because you're going to get better by yourself. And studies have shown if that prescription goes into a wallet or a purse – 
They walk out of the office happy. They got what they wanted. They have the security of having that antibiotic. And many, and most times, they never got it filled. So if every doctor would just stop for a moment and say, Let, let's try to educate the patient about antibiotics. Sometimes you're forced into it. But if every doctor at least hesitated and tried to do the right thing, we'd be much better off than just writing prescriptions all day. Mm -hmm. We have another phone call that is about the use, the the pet issue, the animal issue. So, Arlene, go ahead with your question. Oh, okay. Mine was that was not my issue, but oh, okay. um, <laughs> I was calling uh, two questions. One, um, Lyme. Uh, disease has become uh, more prevalent throughout the United States, and I have been bitten by deer ticks for three years in a row now, and the protocol seems to be that if you know you've gotten the bite within 24 hours, you only get a single uh, antibiotic pill dose, but if you don't know when the bite occurred, then you get a week-long um, regimen. And so I'm wondering if, uh, and there seem to be different viewpoints by doctors on whether or not Lyme disease is serious or not, but if you've known somebody who has it, uh, you get a little freaked out when you find that you've been bitten. Obviously, prevention's a good idea, but uh, do you have any comments on increasing prevalence of Lyme disease and use of antibiotics? My other question is that um, I don't know the current laws regarding use of antibiotics for uh, feedlots, for whether it's chickens or pogs or beef, and I'm just curious what current regulations are. Thank you. John, do you want to, do you have uh, sure. a comment here? Um, yeah. Well, for the Lyme disease, and I'm, again, I work in the hospital mostly, but generally if the tick has been attached for less than 48 hours, it's a very low chance that it would transmit Lyme disease. Um, and I'm not the expert on this, but there's also a difference between types of ticks um, and the rate of um, Lyme disease. The issue for the law, um, I think Karen mentioned this, there is now a requirement that you, d um, you can't use antibiotics that are similar uh, to ones we would use for treating human diseases uh, as growth promoters. And you also have to treat um, under the supervision of a, veter a veterinarian. Um, and you, for the most part, can't treat entire herds um, with one antibiotic or something along those lines. Okay. All right. Dr. Feldman? Uh, just about Lyme disease, uh, I, I think your uh, caller has it right. Uh, if you knew you were bit by a uh, deer tick and you, could, you were confident about that and you came in very early, I would treat with uh, doxycycline. Um, if it's been longer, you would have a longer treatment. Um, sometimes what we do, we see in the office is an expanding rash. And then we know there's a problem, and that's the hallmark of Lyme disease. So very appropriately, uh, we're treating with antibiotics, usually doxycycline. Why it's becoming more prevalent, I don't know. It may be, maybe it's global warming, and maybe those ticks are just, I don't know. I, I, I'm a little tongue-in-cheek, but a lot of, we're seeing a lot of diseases proliferate, tropical diseases too, as we see global warming. Well, if you live in Bloomington, you have a lot more deer, too. That's oh, <laughs> true. Yeah. So uh, I, I've heard about a superbug. Is that a real thing, and is that something to be yes. worried about? Yes. Uh, it depends on what you call a superbug. When we were growing up, strep was a superbug. Uh, but now this uh, outbreak in India that I was talking about was called by caused by what people call a superbug. And these are bacteria that are resistant to multiple antibiotics. A lot of this is due to the fact that your resistance genes are being transmitted from one bacterium to another. You can transfer something from E. coli to a Pseudomonas to a Klebsiella. Uh, there are the kinds of things where you get one antibiotic 
uh, resistance factor. It often travels with something else, and you get bugs that are resistant to six or eight antibiotics. Those are superbugs. Okay. Now, not all bacteria is bad, right? No, we have really good so, bacteria. They're, yeah. they're our so, buddies, actually. How, how do you how, how, can, a, how can you improve your chances by by creating more good bacteria? Well, there... uh, number one, don't you overuse antibiotics because okay. what we do is kill the good bacteria as well as the bad. But also, um, there there is the issue of uh, probiotics, and I think it's really kind of in the more uh, the recent literature, it's gotten to be a little more controversial. I'm no expert on probiotics. Um, the only time I prescribe them is after a viral gastroenteritis, and people are, you know, just to recover from that. I don't usually recommend them uh, just prophylactically or just for uh, regular use. Now, there are doctors that do that, and I'm not saying that's wrong. Uh, but it does promote the norm. We call it the normal flora, and usually what we're talking about <clears throat> is the gut flora. And um, fecal implants. And the, well, yeah, they're doing that in the hospitals now is fecal implants, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. And they, they're just trying to restore the normal flora. Mm-hmm. Uh, probiotics have become a little bit controversial in how effective they are. And sometimes there was some literature about they might make things worse. But the general feeling, I think, still is that probiotics are good. Mm-hmm. And it promotes a healthy, normal flora in the gut. All right, we, we're out of time, but I do oh. want to thank our thank our guest today. A uh, couple of points to take away: talk to your doctor about this. Don't overuse antibiotics. Be sure that you need them if you're going to use them. That's right. All right, I want to thank uh, Karen Bush and Dr. Richard Feldman and John Hiles all for being great guests today, and also for producer Patrick McGurr, engineer Mike Pashkash, and co-host Sarah Whitmire. I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU Public Radio. A podcast of this program and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, Fiber Internet, Streaming TV, Home Security, and Automation in Southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from the Herald Times, featuring coverage of local news, entertainment, and sports. In print at heraldtimesonline.com and on your mobile device.